0: 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three will be the subject of our reading and my preaching this morning. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let us hear it as such. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we pray for a greater understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, come and enable us to understand the word of God. We thank you. We delight in your primary task in declaring the whole counsel of God. We pray that you would help us as we desire to hear that and to do that very thing this morning. Come, Jesus, and preach the word to us through your word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I'm told by the WHO that a healthy diet is essential for good health and nutrition. So we understand the equation that if we want uh, good health, what we need to do is uh, to eat correctly and to exercise correctly. We may all have... Very divergent ideas as to what exercises we ought to do or what kind of a, 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 a diet we must undertake, but it may be paleo, it may be the Mediterranean, it may be simple ca- calorie counting. Uh, you, may, you may believe that cardio is the way to go, you may believe that weightlifting is the way to go, you may believe that walking. And of course, various means of exercise and diet work for various people, but good diet. Uh, and uh, a and exercise contribute to good health and nutrition it's a very basic equation and if any of you have any questions about diet and exercise just see Justin herzig after the service and he'll clarify any and all for you but in the meantime diet and exercise are necessary we all affirm that well it's the same thing in the life of a Christian much as we, if we want to slim down if we want to, Turn back the clock in a way physically, not that we really can, I hate to tell you, you really can't shave a week off your life, you really can't add a week to your days, you really can't add an extra two years if you adopt certain lifestyles. There is a day appointed unto man to die, and after that, the judgment. But in the meantime, you can make your life in the days which God gives to you healthy, perhaps feel better, perhaps have lower cholesterol, and Diet and exercise contribute to those things. And so it protects you, it says, against chronic, non-communicable diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, eating a variety of foods and consuming less salt, sugars, and saturated and industrially produced trans fats are essential for a healthy diet. Well, all good counsel, all good advice. Let me say to you, in the language of the scriptures this morning, the Apostle Peter is saying, if you want to live a good, healthy Christian life, you need to take in the word and put off sin. You see the correlation in the diet. There is a biblical diet that we need to establish this morning, in light of the word in verses one through three in chapter two, that Peter will provide for us if we just listen. Contrary to how we listen to doctors' advice about how we need to lower our obesity levels, nonetheless, and I, I think I think the way that they measure that is is an interesting thing. I, I think I've been even told by, by a very thin man that I knew that the doctor said, well, you're obese. Well, uh, it's an interesting world in which we live. But, but I, I think that all of us understand when we have a little bit too much weight or when our cholesterol levels are rising. And so I think we can also understand, too, when we as Christians are not really performing very well with relation to uh, our devotion to Christ, our faithfulness and service and our battles with sin. We can see it in the same way that we can see a little extra weight. Uh, so, too, can we see it with regard to uh, becoming encumbered in the Christian life, covered over to such a degree that we lose sight of the essentials and we find that we are unfaithful in the things that we know we ought to do. Think about it this way. Do you ever find yourself waking up and realizing at in the course of some this particular day, you come to the recognition You know, I've grown lax in my treatment of sin in my life. It's like if looking in the mirror, we look in the spiritual mirror, we step on the spiritual scale. I've grown lax in my understanding of where I need to be at work in my heart and in my life, and I've I've grown dull in my understanding of how I speak in such a way that it's sinful, regardless of what that sin may be. And you look in the mirror and you step on that spiritual scale and you realize that I've grown lazy about dealing with sin in my life. I've grown lazy about going to church. I'm neglecting Christian fellowship and I'm establishing friendships with with people that really aren't believers. What's happening to me and why has this occurred? Peter, as a good physician would say, as an apostle I know what's happened here. You're neglecting the word of God. And so what we're going to see this morning is there's a relationship between our spiritual health and our embrace and use of the word of God. In the same way that a a good physical diet, if if we embrace a good healthy diet and a, a good exercise schedule, we will find that our health, improves. If we take up the word of God and we put away sin, we will find that our spiritual life will improve. Because these are the means which God has provided for us to be spiritually healthy. Well, just by way of the context and exposition of these three short verses, Peter has been speaking to elect exiles, and he's clarifying for them how they ought to live in the world. Isn't that the best sort of advice? Isn't that the best sort of letter to write to people who feel themselves to be exiles, exiled in a world increasingly changing, increasingly contrary to their Christian identity? I don't know about you, but I, I think that's an entirely relevant subject. I feel like that's where we are as Christians today. We, we, we are continuing in this world, and, and in this world which is Continually contra Christian, against Christ, against the Word, against the Bible. I heard this last week of a of a particular uh, town or township that decided unanimously on the town council they needed to end the relationship that they had had with a local Christian college. They had been benefiting free of charge from a local Christian college's students who were in the teaching uh, in the teaching. Uh, occupation or were intended to in, in that teaching track. And they were able to enable those peop- young people to immerse themselves in a teaching environment in their local schools to, to do so free of charge, teaching math and mathematics and, and, and reading and, and uh, all those various skills that young elementary students need. And they ended the relationship because one individual on that town council said, I believe the values of that Christian school are contradictory to our values as a town and as a people. And so they ended the relationship. I thank God for that Christian school and for those students. And I pray that maybe this would be the one best lesson that they could ever learn. That if they are in a Christian school and they intend to be serious Christians in the world, they will always be treated that way. It's a good wake-up call. So the Apostle Peter is helping us this morning to learn how to live in such a world. How can we live in such a world where even the laws of the land affirm ungodly behaviors, sinful behaviors with which we could never agree? Even when our choices of politicians are between one inherently evil person and another person who has complete apathy about the things of God. And in both instances, they both have no interest whatsoever in the things of God at all. Neither of their party platform platforms can, can in any way fully conform to my values as a Christian. I certainly vote one way versus another, but nonetheless, I can't say that any one political party aligns themselves perfectly in lockstep with me as a believer. I don't think any of us could say that, could we? And so we are left searching for a world where there is no representation. We as Christians really are the people who who have taxation without representation. We really are. We have no real representatives in our government except for The God who uplifts that government and holds it up and continues to miraculously through his intervention and power to continue to sustain and protect his church, even in this hostile world in which we live. Thanks be to God. The reason why no one's coming for you in the night, the reason why we are still able to meet here and no one has barred the doors and burned the building down is because of God's merciful provision of a government, imperfect and sinful but nonetheless sustained by His power. Our God has provided for the safety of His people, and I'm grateful for that. Well, the Apostle Peter is expounding, and he's expounding further upon what he had said in verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Well, he's expounding upon what that means, about what what it means to put aside our sins and what it means to embrace the Christian life. In our recent context, in verses 22 through 25, he affirmed at the end of that chapter, and I I don't necessarily agree with the chapter headings in our English Bibles. There are no chapter headings in the original Greek or Hebrew. Uh, I think this uh, chapter should have ended at the the end of verse 3 of chapter 2, and then chapter 2 to begin with verse 4 of chapter 2. But That's all right. We understand that the thought of verses 1 through 3 belongs really to what the Apostle Peter has been saying in verse 22 through 25. And there he said, love sincerely. A sincere love for the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. And then he speaks of the fact that we have been born again not of perishable seed but imperishable. And what is that imperishable seed but the word of God? And so he's going to bring up those very two same subjects here in this, these three brief verses. It's, and he gives us two commands. That's, that's it. There are two parts to my sermon this morning. There's a twofold command. Each are connected to the other. Each have a relationship to the other. You can't have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. And certainly you cannot have the first without the second. He gives us two commands. Put away. Put away and long for in the English. So the first, put away everything that is unloving. That's our first point in our passage this morning. The word means to cast off. It means to cast away. It's like picking up this phone and and throwing it as far as I can, whether you're over the shoulder or, or sidearm or whatever it is, take that up and toss it. And he says, do that with your sins. Put it away like old worn out clothing. Some of us, especially those of us who are husbands, know what this is like. There comes a day of reckoning. A day of reckoning when our wives enter into our closets and say, I am tired, I'm sick and tired of you being lazy about this. It's come time to get rid of some old clothes. You really don't wear this. I haven't seen you in it in two years. It's time to be rid of it. And so she takes that piece of clothing, balls it up, and she casts it away. Because you and I, we don't have the power to do so. Well, she'll do it, and she, she's very good about it. My wife in particular is very kind, very accommodating, still gracious, even if I sentimentally want to hold on to something that I haven't worn in 10 years. But cast off, put away, cast away, lay apart, put it away. Take it like your wife takes that clothing and pitch it and make sure it's gone. And that's what the Apostle Peter is saying. Put away, cast off. He, He reflects, if anything, various other passages that use the same exact word. Romans 13.12 The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of the darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4.22 Put off the old man, cast it away, set it aside, and corrupt according to its deceitful lusts. Ephesians 4.25 Put away lying. Colossians 3.8 Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. Put it all off. Hebrews twelve one. Lay aside, same word, every weight and sin which so easily besets us. James 1.21 Put off filthiness and receive with humility the word which is able to save your souls. The list of sins to put away here in this passage is not an exhaustive one, but it's intended to summarize The whole counsel of Scripture and the whole of sin and and everything that's contrary to the command of love in verse 22 of chapter 1. Put it away. Cast it off. In other words, there is a command here that the Apostle Peter is commanding us in light of God's counsel and His revelation and His truth. Don't play with sin. Don't play with sin. Don't become contented with the presence of sin in your life. I think that if you're anything like me, what we can do at times is We can recognize and acknowledge that we have a certain pattern of sin. And then if there's one particular victory in any given day, we'll then say, I'm on the road to victory. But then commit the same sin another 15, 20 times in the same course of the day and say, I have had victory today. That's true. Victory is the slightest modification of sin. Victory is the slightest hesitation to commit the same sins that I have committed days before. Sanctification is the smallest step away from sin. However, it's not where we can become contented. Wipe our hands and say I'm done fighting and contending. Cast it off. Cast it away. Put it away like an old worn out clothing, piece of clothing, have nothing to do with it anymore. Look at it, hold it up and say, it's full of torn things. It's faded and worthless. It is of no value. It is of no value to me, even though the world says it's a beautiful thing. Even though the world affirms this sin, for me, I have spiritual eyes from which the scales have been lifted and I can see the emptiness of sin. And in light of God's truth and with the help of the Holy Spirit and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to have anything to do with that sin ever again. Well, depending utterly upon your grace, O oh God, to do it. Because your commands are overwhelming to me and I cannot do it unless you do it. So the Apostle Peter is telling us that, and, and he uses language, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's a big word, isn't it? All of it, not just some of it. Not just we can't become contented with victory over sin in one particular area of of our lives and neglect the rest of our lives and not not examine and carefully peruse the rest of it, but rather we are to be vigorously, continually, always looking and examining ourselves under the spiritual light of God's word that illumines our path and illumines who we really are so that we can deal with our sin. Now, the Apostle Peter shares with us five particular sins, and he wants us to become aware of them as, as, as a sort of summary of sin. It's not exhaustive, it's a summary. And so he refers to malice. It's This word means evil. It means maliciousness. It means a particular wickedness that is unafraid and unashamed to commit evil. It's a bold embrace of sin. Of particular note, it is a bold embrace of harmful sin to others. Maliciousness is the face of the person who has decided I am going to harm that other person consciously, willfully. I have made a decision to do so because I hate them in my heart. Deceit. Now this word, I want you to remember the, the Greek pronunciation of this word, dalos or dolon. It means decoy or fraud. It's it's a, a deceitful thing. It's guile or crafty deceit. It's it's a trickery. None of us would ever trick anyone, would we? And yet, do we deceive? Do we suggest things about ourselves which may not be entirely true? Do we say things about others that leave out key components that would help people to think a little differently about our brother or sister in the Lord, but rather to make ourselves look just a little bit better and them just a little bit more foolish? We might adjust how we say things to someone. This last week I was complaining about something and I forget the, the exact circumstances of it, but I told someone that well so and so is uh, this I wasn't speaking about an individual. I was speaking about an organization. I was saying this this organization is going to neglect to do this, and then afterwards they actually did what they should have done, and and they did it right, and I found myself pricked in my conscience that I had spoken against this organization, and I went back to the individual and I said, "You know, I have to correct what I just said. They did the right thing." I observed it, you observed it, and I was wrong to make the comment that I did. I was being negative and harmful and hurtful. Deceitful. If I didn't go back and correct the record. This word is used of those who, of individuals who sought by craft to take Jesus into custody in Luke's gospel and Mark. and and Matthew as well they sought by craft or with guile or deceit to take Jesus into custody it's in the list of sins in Romans 129 and it's the word that Jesus uses when he looks at Thomas and and he says behold a man in whom there is no guile no deceit a man who speaks clear truth and is not crafty in his speech third word is hypocrisy it's it's Hypocrisy—the acting of a stage player. For those of us who hypocrites, who are hypocrites, we need to acknowledge: Yes, I'm—I'm I'm a bit of a stage actor. I'm not authentically what inside what I am, and what I show to people outside. Hypocrisy—it's what Matthew twenty-three twenty-eight—it's—it uh, it refers to Jesus accuses those who accused him of appearing righteous before men, but being full of hypocrisies. It involves a a conscious and unashamed effort to sin and to deceive others. A conscious awareness of the fact of who and what we are with an intent to show others in contradiction to that what we want them to think that we are. But we know ourselves internally not to be. If any of that made sense. It's a self-justifying effort to be self-righteous. And to hold up the best of ourselves without letting anyone see the darker areas, the blackness of sin in our hearts. The filth of sin, the corruption of sin. And it's holding ourselves up to be something better than we are. And refusing to acknowledge, yes, I am weak. I do struggle with sin. And this is where I'm struggling in my life. Would you pray for me? It's something I spoke about in our Bible study. It might have been about a year ago. And I was soundly rebuked afterwards by an individual who is no longer in our church who said, Christians are not capable of hypocrisy. Well, I'm sorry. Peter lists it to to sojourners and aliens in the dispersion. He's saying don't embrace the hypocrisy which you and I have a natural tendency to. And I think it's the humble Christian that recognizes, yes, yes, I can be a hypocrite. Yes, I am hypocritical. I'm ready to condemn sin in a brother or a sister and to speak vociferously about it while failing to recognize, in truth, I I sin in the same way. Hypocrisy There's also envy. It's jealousy. It's just simple jealousy. And this describes our former life in Titus 3.3, 3, uh, that, that we were filled with envy, as, as as Paul writes to Titus, and makes clear that we ought not to walk in such a way anymore. It makes the list of sins in Galatians 5.21 and Romans 1.29, envy, jealousy. And Paul says to the Galatian church, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You think about that. Envy? Jealousy? I'm not talking about, I don't think the text is talking about an appropriate jealousy that a young married couple, or that young or old, that a that a, a married spouse has for their other for their spouse. There is an appropriate jealousy that is not petty, that is not ridiculous over small things, but rather has a zeal for the love and the covenant of love that a married couple has for each other. In the same way, as Christian friends, as members of the congregation, have a specific and and an appropriate agape love for each other, each of us, for one another, and have a jealousy over our walk with Christ, in the sense that, We guard carefully and we watch over one another to make sure this sister in the Lord, I haven't seen her in church in in five months and I need to go and speak with her. I'm jealous in this sense. I'm envious in this sense. I want for her what I have in Christ. I want for him to, to know the love of Christ and to grow in the way in which I've grown too. And so humbly we reach out and we approach them. Slander is the last one it's evil speaking it's slanderous language it's untrue language about another person Uh, it may be true language too it may be entirely true the story that we share about that other person but it's something we shouldn't have said it's something we should not share it's something that we know in the other person's eyes to whom we are speaking it will lower their estimation of this other individual it's defamation. Paul says he's he's fearful about the Corinthian church in Second Corinthians 12.20. I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I should find you in such a way as you would not, lest there be debates and envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. He used the same word of slander. This is a church of people who criticize one another and love to do it. In Corinth. I thank God that you as a church are not like that, but be careful that you don't become like that. It's very, very easy to do so. The bad news is we have all committed these sins, and we continue in some way day by day to do them because of our sin nature, the dominance of sin and its reign. However, for the believers, the reign of sin is broken. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is no longer master over us. You do not need to slander. You do not have to be envious and jealous. You certainly should not be malicious. And you should not deceive. And God help us, we do not need to be hypocrites. God has called us to something better. The apostle Paul and Peter is speaking to us about what, what we call mortification. Do you know what mortification is? It's putting to death. It's the putting to death of sin. And he's saying, put it away. Cast it aside. Have nothing further to do with it. Take that old piece of clothing of the old man and cast it into the trash. Don't put it in the, in, into the hamper anymore. Cast it into the trash because that's where it belongs. You need to have an active hostility against sin, to wage warfare against sin. A passive approach to sin will never happen. And it will never cure us. If you're waiting on God to simply sanctify us, just uh, to, to sanctify you, you're in for you're, you're in for a storm. Because if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to send such things into your life if you're not willing to engage with your sins. He will, in fact, one way or the other, cause you to do so. Better to take up your cross day by day and follow Jesus Christ. Better to take each day seriously the biblical call to put sin to death. To walk in synergistic activity with the Holy Spirit, depending utterly upon him and pleading with him to continue to be at work in us. I've heard it said by a Puritan of old, kill sin or it will kill you. If you don't kill sin, if you don't deal with your sins, it will so corrupt your soul and you will find that you have neglected your soul and you have lost perhaps your grasp of Christ, demonstrating that you never knew Christ in the first place unless you truly and sincerely come to him truly and sincerely take up that call each day to live for him and to die to sin. In contradiction to the victorious life advocates who say all we really have to do is just to to, to, to proclaim each day a a, a a happy lesson, as it were, in the scriptures and to proclaim what we want and what we desire and God will give it to us. God will give us the victory in the end. Well, genuine cont- Genuine Christianity involves participation in the holiness of God, which calls for strenuous effort, cross-bearing, self-denying, sin-denying, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires every single day. And in that way, we achieve victory. I believe in a victorious Christian life emphatically but a victorious Christian life based upon grace, based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, which involves my confession of my own corruption and sin and my embrace empty-handed of Jesus Christ in faith. You too must believe in the same way. And we as Christians, what are we to do with our sins day by day when we say, yes, there are malicious parts to me? Sometimes... It may not come out. I don't want to do anybody harm and stab a knife in someone's heart. But but yes, I, I would like for someone to, to get a little bit of what they've got coming to them. And yes, I do hold myself out publicly to be just a little better than I am and I know myself to be privately. And sometimes I am envious and jealous in ungodly ways. When a brother or a sister get something good, I'm jealous of it. And when someone else kind of achieves something, I I wish, I think, geesh, they had it so easy. My life is much, much harder than theirs. This isn't fair. Well, what we need to do is fight the tendency within ourselves to commit these sins. Fight for the tender conscience that is afraid of sin and is ashamed at evil intent. And confesses it before God. Lord, I was malicious. Forgive me. This is wrong. Fight for sincerity and truthfulness. Fight for integrity and honesty. Fight to remove the mask of acting that we all put up. Stop acting. Be honest with one another. Don't you know that your brothers and sisters in Christ will humbly and graciously deal with you if you're honest about your life and what you're struggling with? And you just might find that someone else will say, I'm struggling with the same things. Pray for me. Recently, we shared something with regard to our daughter, and afterwards, a dear friend came and said, "I'm struggling with a similar issue in my own family. Maybe if I hadn't said anything, she wouldn't have brought that to our attention, and we wouldn't be praying." Let's be honest with one another. Uh, may May God. May God condemn the spirit in us that says, I need to hide my personal problems so that everyone else thinks I've got my life together and I'm solid as a rock. God forbid I should tell my brothers and sisters in Christ what I'm really struggling with and have 30 people praying for me. May God condemn such an attitude. You're fundamentally saying, I have no intention of engaging God's people in praying for me. In other words, you really don't want to change your life and you really don't want to be free of that sin, do you? If you're serious about sin, if you're serious about serving God, you'll take seriously this call to be honest and sincere and not hypocritical to tell the truth. I'm really struggling with these sins in my life. I really find this to be a barrier to my Christian growth. Pray for me. Does anyone else struggle with that? It's a wonderful thing to say in a Bible study or in a prayer meeting. I'm struggling with X. Does anyone else struggle with that? I think you're going to see a lot of other nodding heads and find sympathy and empathy and help. Fight for sincerity and truthfulness, for integrity and honesty. No masks. Fight for joy and happiness and thanksgiving when others excel or are blessed in different ways than yourself. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Give thanks when others have reason to give thanks, even when you may not see a reason for giving thanks in your own life. Even when you have to wait for God to provide. Fight for good and worthy speech, for the building up of one another in love. Fight to stop shining a light on the sins of others. Stop using speech that is offensive and filthy. But use speech which is wholesome and builds up for good. Hold up each action, every motive. Ask continually to get to the root and the core of motivation for what moves me and why I act the way I act. And ask yourself, ask myself the reasons for why we commit the sins that we do and where the evil intent has come from. Grieve over it and ask for forgiveness. C.H. Spurgeon said, The heathen misrepresent God by worshiping idols. We misrepresent God by our murmurings by our complainings and our thought that there is pleasure in sin. There is no pleasure in sin, dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. So we come to the second part of of this sermon. It's briefer than the first. It's shorter. Long for, long for, desire the word of God desire to, to the degree in holiness almost of a lustful state the same word is used for lust in a negative sense but in a positive sense you think about lust and the fire of lust and the burning in the palms and the and the gut wrenching nature of of l- the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh desire for the word pursue the word of god with love build a new diet take in the bible and look for its long-term effects. When I first started taking John, my youngest son, to the gym with me when he was, beginning, he was beginning to think about joining the Marines, and he said, Dad, I said, well, if you're going to the Marines, you need to bulk up. You need to strengthen yourself. Do it now, or you're going to find it harder when you join the Corps. And so we began going to the gym together. And after about two weeks, he looked at me and said on the way home in the truck day, he said, Daddy, I don't. I don't think anything's going to change. I don't think I'm going to bulk up at all. I I don't think I'm going to get any stronger before I go. And I said, Johnny, the nature of working out is that if you take if you take if you if you make the effort, you will see the results. Only be consistent. It takes a while, but you'll see it. If you take in the Word of God, you will see the good effect of that word on your life and soul and family and home, your conduct, the way you think, the way that you speak. Take in the word of God. There are many biblical diets or biblical texts that speak of the same ardent desire. Over and over again the Apostle Paul says, I long to be with you. It's that same word. It's 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 the same word of Psalm forty two two, or the same correlation my soul thirsts for God. Peter is saying you must thirst for the word. Think about newborn babies. That's the illustration he uses. Newborn babies. What do newborn babies want? They want nourishment. They want to be fed. And so when, when they are immediately born, they are pressed to their mother and they immediately receive nutrition and they continue to receive that nutrition over the life uh, uh, their, their initial life until such age as they need meat and stronger things. The, the Apostle Peter is not saying each of us, every one of us as Christians is immature. He's not saying that. He's not saying that a, 40, uh, a Christian who's been in the Lord for 40 plus years hasn't learned a thing. He's not saying that. He's talking about longing. He's talking about not immaturity, but he's talking about perspective. As a baby who cries and desires to be fed, count on it. Every hour, every two, They have few needs. Most of them are peripheral when it comes to hunger. They want to be fed and they cry. They cry constantly. They want to be fed. You can, you could offer them candy. You could, you could offer them juice. You could offer them any other thing under heaven. What do they want? They want nourishment. The nourishment they have received as a newborn baby from their mothers. They want to be fed. And as a Christian, shouldn't we have such a frame of mind that at the end of a long day of work, I'm so exhausted, I'm sore, I can barely function, and my mind wants to just veg out? Do you take up the Bible and read it? (laughs) I'm thankful for the brothers and sisters who can say, "Mm "Hmm, yes, I do. But I think sometimes we neglect to do so. Take up the Bible and read. Shouldn't we come to the end of our days with a full knowledge of the Word of God, having studied this precious book with such an ardent desire and love and longing that we have come to know where just about anything and everything is that we could ever desire, need, or want? Shouldn't we press on beyond the occasional, I've got a verse of the day? No. Take in the Word. Feed deeply upon that Word. Get to know large sections, swaths of Scripture, whole books and the intents of the authors with full application as to whatever the situation may be. I need encouragement. I need to battle against sin. I, I, I need to know what kind of church I need to be a part of. I, I, I need to know what kind of re, how to deal with the relationships that I have. And we have a ready and easy reference in the Word of God. The relationship that a believer has with the Word of God should be like that of a newborn infant with their mother. That's the argument the, the Apostle Peter is using. Your and my perspective on the Bible should be the same in its ardent desire that a newborn infant has for his or her mother. With regard to that word, it's interesting, we're, it, P- Peter refers to it as the pure word, he uses that word dalon, that same word that we referenced earlier on when we were talking about sin, it's, re, it's, it's derived from the same word as deceit. And I think he uses that word on purpose. He says, don't, don't, don't do that, put that away, but put on this. Don't drink of the corruptible stuff, the impure stuff. How many of us would drink things that harm our bodies? We've heard of a train derailment in, uh, in, in, in uh, Palestine, Ohio. I believe that's a proper pronunciation, I guess, but I want to say Palestine. And the people are saying they can't drink. They can't, they can't take showers in the water. They can't drink from the tap, even though politicians stand there and say, oh, it's good. Drink it. Here's a cup. Well, you only took one sip. We've got to drink it 24 hours a day and take a shower in it 24 hours a day. Let's see what you think then. None of us would drink harmful things, I don't think. We want the pure stuff. We want the best stuff. And if we can take and place great attention onto what we ingest in our bodies and what we partake of, what we allow to be injected into our bodies, then surely should we not also take great pains to make certain that we are taking in the pure word of God. Peter is alluding to Psalm 34:8, and he, he gives us a, a almost a, a test. He says, look, maybe you're finding yourself without much of a, a an appetite for the word of God, and you're saying, I struggle day by day. And you're saying, you know, I believe that all that you're saying and all that Peter is saying about the Bible is true. And I understand I need to do these things. But but taking up the Bible and reading large sections of Scripture is hard for me. I find myself so busy. And when I read, I don't understand everything that I, I read. Well, the Apostle Peter helps us with that. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Do you need motivation in Bible reading? Has God ever walked with you in nearness and warmth? Have you ever felt a sense of God with you? Have you ever felt a sense of God's mercy in Christ? That, that caused your eyes to well over in tears? Have you ever, ever experienced that God has been good and merciful and kind and gracious to you? Don't you know that you will experience more of a sense of that if you take up his Bible, his word, and read? If you have tasted of the Lord that He is good, if you know that your experience of the Lord is always good, if you experience that when you come face to face with the reality, I've neglected the Word, and you take it up and you read again, and you're refreshed in it, and your lazy flesh the next day says, I did it yesterday, I'm good today. Your conscience needs to say, No, I, I tasted the goodness of God yesterday. I ought not to be satisfied that I had it one day when I can have it every day. I love the word. The word is good. The word illumines my path. It lights the way for my feet. I can't live on bread alone. I live by the word of God. It instills life in my body and it teaches me and it shows me the goodness and the kindness of God. He's alluding to Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. In what way do we taste the Lord? In relationships, in access, in a sense of His presence, in growth and sanctification, in putting away of sin and finding new power to do so. Maybe you're asking this morning as we conclude, what is my problem as a Christian? Why am I growing slowly? Why am I still beset by the same things I am beset by every day? Why does my life seem to change little, if anything, if any, after a year or two years? Why do I see such slow progress in my soul? Why do I have, seem to have so little ability to put away the sins of my flesh? Why do I have so, such a low appetite for spiritual things? Why do I find it so hard to get through a Sunday service without falling asleep? Because you neglect the Word of God. Because the Word of God isn't something gloriously special and unique to you. Because perhaps you've been neglecting it for too long. Or because you're satisfied with a small piece when you should be taking great gulps. You need the Word. Like a good biblical diet... You want to shed the unwanted weight from sin. You want to do away with the things that have entangled you and kept you from the workout that you need. Feed faithfully on the pure milk of the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would help us as we come to that faithful word. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us according to your word and fill us full of that word day by day that we might serve you that we might restrain sin and put it to death, that we might all the more walk in holiness before you, that we might taste further of you and declare, oh, the Lord, all that I taste from God is good. I drink deeply at the wells of salvation. I drink deeply of the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord in my estimation, in my experience of the Christian life, even though I am an alien and a sojourner, and I am an aw- awaiting that kingdom which is not yet come in its fullest sense, nonetheless, oh, well, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us who are longing and waiting, who are desiring and whose souls are not yet fed with the things that are the desires of our very hearts, We pray that you would teach us complete and total satisfaction in tasting of you and in our experience of you. Satisfy our soul, Lord, with good things. Feed us according to your word. Cause us to grow in our understanding of our salvation. And we pray, O God, that you would do this for Jesus' sake. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together now and sing our last hymn, Blessed Be the Ties That Bind, hymn number 409.